0: Hey everyone, it's uh, David Barnett. We're back with another Holiday Chat 2020 call, this time with Mike Foley from uh, North Carolina. How are you doing there today,
1: Mike? Doing fantastic, excited to uh, get a chance to talk to you. I've enjoyed uh, watching a lot of your videos on YouTube and uh, gained a lot from that, so.
0: Awesome, well, um, you uh, actually uh, have undertaken some of the stuff that, that I talk about all the time. You are in the process of buying a business. You want to start a little bit with maybe your background and, and what has happened, maybe up to this point?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, my background is residential real estate development and construction. And uh, w- one of the great things about that is you can make a lot of money, or you can also lose a lot of money uh, depending on how things go. So, it's, it's very up and down, and it can be a lot of uh, a long time between paychecks. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that interested me in buying a business was the uh, potential for some more steady monthly cash flow and also the returns. I own some commercial and residential real estate that does it does pretty well and uh, but not doesn't have the potential returns of, uh, of businesses, you know, on a ROI perspective. So yeah. That's something that I've thought about. and being in, being in residential construction, you know I'm paying a lot of plumbers and, and framers and electricians along the way and I see how busy they are. So it's something I've thought about you know buying one of the trade companies probably for about 15 years. And uh, my family, we moved out to from California to North Carolina about four years ago and, and out here, this is, this is the number one home building. Market in the country, so it's something that I've only, you know, has only increased as I've seen how, you know, how long it takes to get the trade people to to even show up on a job. Right. They're just so swamped. So uh, COVID slowed down some of my projects and kind of allowed me the opportunity to pursue uh, really diving into into buying a business. And uh, because I, I worked in construction, you know, I initially was thinking about well, one of the trade companies would be a natural place to start. So I spent a lot of time on YouTube learning about the whole process of of, of buying a business. And uh, I think I kind of pursued the the process the way, the way a lot of people do, which was you know getting on the you know, the BizQuest and the BizBuySell. Mm-hmm. Uh, websites and uh, you know interacting with brokers and signing NDAs and then getting their packages. And I think, you know, I probably experienced the same frustration that a lot of people do is that, you know, once you get in to looking at the numbers, you realize that, you know, they either are made up or, or they, they just don't make any sense. You know, the you know, suddenly their gross profit margin, you know, was, has been 10% and now it's, you know, 22%, you know, for 2019. So, you know, that, uh, you know, I don't know if there's any, any way a- around that um, other than, you you know, you just have to get the, get the numbers and, and dive in there and, and, you know, and maybe negotiate, you know, once, once you've, get gotten to some, you know, realistic numbers of, you know, what the numbers really are.
0: Well, it's, yeah, there's, there's a lot of people out there who suffer from that same frustration. And a lot of the times it's, it's uh, you know, the brokers not presenting it correctly. Other times it's the the business owners not giving the broker adequate information. Um, It, it is mine. I, I still work with some brokers today and, Sometimes questions go unanswered for weeks upon weeks and you have to wonder, is the seller really interested in selling? They're not getting back to us, but if it's one of these tradesmen, like you're talking about, they're they're up to their eyeballs in work and requests from people that need to get something done today so that money will roll in. And, and at the end of the day, business owners are distracted by the fact that they actually have to run the business.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. And, uh, So you know it it is time-consuming to to really dive into those numbers, but obviously that's you know an essential part of the process. So I uh, you know I started looking at different ways to try to find the business, and and one was to to reach out directly to Mm -hmm. some of the owners. So I I was using LinkedIn Sales Navigator to to kind of specifically target specific businesses that I liked and I actually found, uh, actually the first person I contacted said he was interested in selling, which is a electrical contractor. And so that was uh, something I started pursuing and I have a, a, a buddy who's a electrical contractor. So I started asking him a lot of advice about the trade and what to look at and so forth. And along the way, he mentioned, oh, you know, by the way, my in-laws have a company that they're very interested in selling. Uh, it, it happens to be on the West Coast and I'm here in North Carolina, but it, it is a business that is, is big enough that I'm hoping that if I did buy it, eventually I could bring in a general manager to, to run it. And so that was, you know, just by kind of getting the word out there I came across uh, what I think is, is a really good opportunity and that's.
0: Go ahead. So, so in North Carolina, are there any requirements that the owner of such a business have any kind of licensing on their, of their own?
1: Yeah. So in the trades, uh, yes, definitely. And it's not, it's not easy to get those licenses. So, uh, you know, with SBA requirements, you're not allowed to keep the seller on um, more than a year under, under an of contract. So it's definitely an issue of needing to have an agreement with some of the existing people on the team who may have their license or getting them to get their license within that period. Because, you know, without the license, you don't, you don't have a business. Yeah, And it, it, it can be an issue if there's just one person that has the license because they, they you know, they've got some leverage on you. Uh, they say, well, I don't really feel like working 40 hours a week, but I've got the license. So, you know, I think uh, you'd want to at least have two people on your team that uh, have an agreement in place that they will be the license holder.
0: Yeah, it's, it's this licensing stuff. That is is—it's probably one of the reasons why there's no <clears throat> national brand name electrical contractor, you know, like the McDonald's of electricians or anything like that. Um, because it, uh, a lot of people who aren't in the trade um, would get scared off from, from investing in something where to your point, other people can kind of hold you hostage because they're the ones with the, uh, with the permits and or license to, to sign off on things.
1: Yeah, it's, it's definitely an issue. And one of the yeah. things that I, I kind of learned in my, in my pursuit of a business is, you know I, I kind of started small and then I realized that a lot of the businesses I was looking at, if I bought them, I was really gonna be buying myself a job. And that is not something that ultimately I, I, I wanted. So I, I started broadening my search you know, beyond just, uh, trade companies to larger companies where there would be at least some, some management in place, you know, the owners are likely, you know, still running the companies, but there is some, some management in place. And so that kind of expanded my search, uh, criteria and, um, you know, really, really the focus of what I was, what I was looking at. And,
0: And you did end up finding something though.
1: Yeah, yeah. So part of it, you know, going back to uh, my buddy who's an electrician, his in-laws have a company on the West Coast and they are in the shipping container repair business. Okay. And they've been doing it for a long time. Uh, I like the business. It's not something that I've ever been involved in. Um, But the the business has been around for a long time. It's a husband and wife that run it. The, the, the numbers are gradually increasing every year. Uh, their, their business um, you know, seems to be thriving. It seems to be somewhat recession proof because it's, it's related to export of products out of the United States. So if, if we're in a recession and the dollar loses value, more exports, uh, you know, co- company, uh, other countries are gonna wanna buy more of our products. So I, I love that aspect of it, and even for 2020, they're they're having a better year than 2019. So that you know, all of that I find find really attractive. And you know, one of the things I want to talk to you is, you know, is it's they do about eight million dollars in revenue a year, so it's mm-hmm. in pretty good volume. They have uh, I think they have 22 employees, and they're dealing with a lot of the large Shipping companies, they have contracts with them, and so we've started the LOI process. It's it's been a, a long process because they they didn't have a lease agreement in place, so that kind of halted the process. Uh, the lender isn't requiring that, of course, that they have a uh, that they have a lease in place. They just had a verbal agreement.
0: Awesome. where What kind of place do they operate from? Is it like from an industrial park or are they kind of on Portland somewhere?' they're,
1: they're off of the port they're, they're in a uh, they're in a big uh, uh, 20 acre parcel where they' all the shipping containers are stored. okay and so they were just subleasing uh, a part of that but they just had a verbal agreement with the uh, with the current uh, tenant there so okay. So that's that's put things on hold um, until they get that in place. So we really haven't, you know, dove into the, the due diligence other than they've given me uh, some of their historical financials going back five years, which all look pretty good. But my question is, you know, I've owned lots of businesses, and I've started them from scratch, but I've never actually bought one, and. I wanted to know how deep to dive into the due diligence. Uh, You know, obviously they have contracts in place with suppliers, with clients. What do you recommend?
0: Well, so the, the whole idea of due diligence is just to make sure that the, that the, to try and determine to what degree you can rely upon the information that you've been provided. So, and, so th- that's financial due diligence. And then there's legal due diligence, for example, that your attorney will do to find out if there's any outstanding law suits or anything like that. And then there's due diligence with respect to the workforce, You know, due diligence with respect to sales. Like there's, there's different things that you have to look into. The, the financial due diligence is always the one that people tend to start with. Uh, because if there are red flags that come up with that one, then the whole question of the price of the business then comes into play. And so the key here is finding a CPA that has experience in helping people do due diligence. Um, somebody who has some kind of background in audit or someone who used to work for the IRS, for example, like, like they would have training in looking for problems and things. The nice thing about a business like this is that there's no tell I mean, every, everything is done by invoice and check or electronic transfer or however. So there's the money flowing in and out of the bank account can all be verified against the, the books of the business, the accounting software. Uh, so you can see see what's going on there. The, you'll want to take a snapshot, a few sample months where you get the bank statements and all of the activity of the business and the CPA will match it against their internal bookkeeping. Just to make sure everything lines up. Is there any inventory in the business that they to speak of?
1: Yeah, because they do sell, they do sell parts. So a couple okay. hundred thousand dollars in inventory.
0: So so in a business, an industrial business that has inventory, you want to make sure that you're looking at financial statements that are accrual basis, but also that the inventory has been properly managed. Here's why. If they are not doing a properly proper inventory count at the end of every fiscal year, then their cost of goods sold could be off. And one of the one of the things that you can look at to, to give you an idea if if that could be the case is if their gross margins tend to bounce around, it can indicate, for example, if somebody goes and buys a bunch of inventory on the end of a fiscal year and they they expense that inventory, like they account for it as a, as a purchase and consumed. It'll cause right. the profit to go down in that year. This is a trick that some business owners will do to reduce their tax bill, but it's not the proper way of, of accounting for inventory. When you buy inventory, it's supposed to then go into your inventory account. So it's, it's actually not a, a PL activity at all. You just turned cash into, into goods. It's only when those goods are consumed, they're sold to customers or used up in the repair process, that their cost becomes a part of the cost of goods sold on the PL. And so I've had different people over the years who've looked at businesses where performance will improve or be erratic as far as the gross margin. And then when they get into it, they realize that the inventory has never been managed properly, which then means you can't trust the specific activity of any one period you can start to average things over a course of many years, but sure. it start, you start to be, it starts to just become more opaque. Right. And so the, it, the, it's like an image that gets out of focus. You, you thought it, you saw clearly what was there, but then you realize that there's these things that are making it a little bit fuzzier and the big counterbalance always to this stuff is the more fuzziness or uncertainty you have with the due diligence. You want to offset that through the terms which is having a you know a greater degree of, of seller financing, so that if there's a material, really bad thing that right that comes well, up after, then you you got options in that situation, right? And then so that then the question is, you know, it sounds like these guys are doing business with the different shipping lines, perhaps. Mm-hmm. That, yeah, 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 yeah. All the so, major
1: global companies.
0: Yeah, so. So there's not 500 of those, right? Yeah. So, So then the next thing I would be looking at is sales and revenue. And I'd be looking at customer concentration. So if half their business is coming from Maersk or one of those big shipping companies, well, then that's another area of real concern. Because if one of those big accounts were to go away for whatever reason, then that's going to have a material impact on the performance of the business. And when we, when we start getting into that kind of specific problem, the way that other people have dealt with that is by having a greater degree of seller financing and even splitting up the seller financing. So I've had situations where someone was buying a business and 50% of the sales came from one customer. Mm-hmm. And so they bought the business, they required a high degree of seller financing, but then the seller financing was broken into different notes and one of those notes was earmarked for that specific customer. So the idea was this note will take four years to pay off. And if that customer stops buying from us in that moment, the balance of that note is just written off. So it's, it's almost like that specific note represents the goodwill associated to that one client. And wow, sellers are not going to like that because what is happening is they're, be, they're still bearing the risk of that customer relationship. But when you buy an existing business, what you're buying is a cash flow, which is based upon the business that exists today. And if a couple of those big accounts leave, then you're left with you're not left with the business you bought. And yeah, which
1: is which is a big concern, you
0: know. Yeah. Like sellers will argue, okay, well it's up to you to keep the keep the account, but sometimes, you know, you can do everything correct and still lose an account. Right. You, you don't know what some happens other, naturally. Yeah. yeah. Some other competitor can offer them something that, you know, they, they decide is better or what, or, or a shipping line could leave the port. Right. Or, Absolutely. or they could sign a deal. Um, this is something I've seen happen in different services where um, a company will source things locally and then decide to go with a global supply contract. And they'll go with some big company that has subcontractors all around the world and in that jurisdiction the subcontractor is not you and just, just like that you lose the account it's got nothing to do with you or the person at the shipping line there locally it has to do with something that happened at their head office which you know could be half a world away so so that would be my concern with with sales and revenue is, is is there a customer concentration problem the you know looking at labor and employees Um, I'm always concerned with are there specific skill sets here and what is the labor pool like? So, you know, if it's something as general as people need to know how to be welders, you know, in a big city, there's lots of welders around, you know, you're able to to find that. Um, Sometimes there are, you know, back to your electrician example, if you're buying an electrical contractor in a market that's a smaller market, you know, it could be harder to find specific labor. But you say it's on the west coast. Is it in a pretty big size community? It must be if there's a port. Yeah,
1: yeah, decent sized community. Yeah, going back to even the even in a big city with some of the trades, they're they're just so the companies are so busy, and there's just not a lot of people that are going into the trades. So it can be an issue in, in any size market.
0: Well, I've had you know, conversations with people over the years who are involved in any in these trade related businesses. And my father-in-law actually is a, a guy who owns an auto repair facility. And if you know, you're good for the long haul, and you know, you constantly are going to need a supply of new people, then sometimes people get involved with helping people obtain their certifications. You know, hiring young people who are interested in that and and helping them get through their their training and and certification and in ex- just like that army program, you know, you you sign up, we'll educate you, but you got to serve so many years. You can do that as well, where you can loan people money to do their their trade school training, and then you can have that debt self erase over the span of a certain number of years. So you can make a deal with someone and say. I'll advance you the money for that. It'll be repaid simply by you being here over the next so many years. If you leave early, you owe the balance. Right. And you can kind of develop your own pipeline of talent. Creating your
1: own funnel. Right. That's ongoing funnel. Yeah.
0: It requires a steady amount of work though. Like, you know, I was looking at a business the other day with a, with a client in Texas and they, they do, um, It's like a machine shop and they manufacture things for the oil and gas industry and their sales go up and down and up and down and they're constantly laying off and then hiring people. That's tough, especially if the people in the area know that you're project-based and if they get hired on with you, that they're likely going to be laid off in the next year sometime it's harder for people to want to work there.
1: Right. It seems like in that kind of circumstance, you would need to have a very detailed, onboarding and training program to get people up to speed since you're doing it over and over and over again.
0: Well, it depends what the work is, right? Because sometimes you can hire people who've done the same kind of work for other companies. So, as far as line manufacturing work. But this this container repair, it sounds like like is it pretty steady cash flow over the course of the last few years?
1: It's yeah, no, it's actually been slowly increasing. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, I think it just is kind of the trade volumes are increasing globally. Their business increases, uh, you know, along with that Unsteady. Kind of steady. Um, You know, there is some kind of up and down during the year, but uh, it, the, the overall annual revenues have been just gradually growing about 70% per year.
0: Okay. And have you had many conversations with the owners yet?
1: Well, yeah, it's a, you know, ongoing, we've been talking for about six months. So it's a, it's a long uh, going process. I, I think that there, there was a little hesitancy on their part, you know, maybe uh, to let go of their, their baby that they've owned for a long period of time. So I've, I've treated the transaction differently than, you know, I would like a real estate transaction where it's like, you know, either, you know either we get this done by next Monday or the deal's off. So I, I, I like the opportunity. So I've been willing to be patient and understanding that they they're having a hard time. Um, apparently they've been thinking about selling for five years.
0: So. Yeah. so, you know, the big difference between buying and selling a house or a car and buying and selling a business.
1: It's a lot more complicated.
0: Well, but the key difference is that after the transaction, you actually still need a relationship with the person that sold it to. You. Yeah. And because when you buy a house, you don't it's have over. to be you don't have to be concerned about the long term relationship with that person. You pay them, they go away, right? And with with a the business, there's a transition period. Um, under the terms of the deal, you might end up owing them money for a certain period of time that you have to keep paying them. Um, they will have an in, hopefully that's enough to give them an interest in your success, so that they can maybe be helpful on an ongoing basis, coach you a little bit, be, be there for advice, or just to help you if you run into something new. Maybe they could you know tell you what they did if they had that circumstance while they were the owner. And so you have to build a relationship that is going to be enduring, that uh, they're going to want to answer the phone when they see that your your number calling after the deal happens. Sure. And so they need to feel that they were handled fairly in the deal and that you're the right guy and you're going to do well and, and that they're going to want to be helpful to you. So it's, a, you're right. It's a whole different thing. You actually have to, in a lot of cases, build a friendship almost.
1: Yeah. And, it has to be a lot of trust. You know, that was one thing, you know, looking at some businesses where I started to, question the integrity of the sellers or, you know, whether they're being completely forthright or honest with me mm-hmm. about it, you know, it can really be about anything. And, you know, once that kind of level of trust goes away, it just seems like there's no, no point in pursuing it because you do need that. It is, it's, you know, to me, it's, you know, it's much less tangible than buying a piece of real estate, which is easy to value and, you know, relatively easy to continue, you know, the managing it um, as opposed to a business, you know, lots of different parts, mm-hmm. employees and, and so forth. And yeah, I, I could see, you know, it's been an interesting experience comparing um, buying real estate to buying a business and definitely, <laughs> definitely yeah. a lot more, you know, even on the due diligence side, a lot more moving parts.
0: Yeah. That trust factor is a big thing in, in the business buyer adventure group coaching program, a bunch of the, of the people in that group program, they'll they'll create like a, a series of, of, uh, things they want to score. Like if they're looking at a business, trust is super important to a bunch of people in there. Be, to your point, if you get the feeling that somebody's deceptive about one thing, then it just, then you the red flags go up because you're like, well, what else? Are they deceptive? And then, and then one of two things happens. The buyer says either if I'm going to buy this, I now understand that there could be other things that I'm, that I'm unaware of. I either need a price that's very low to compensate for the potential of risk, or I need terms that, you know, put even more risk on the seller, you know, so that if it turns out there are many bad things that appear after, then, then um, you know I have even more options to offset that against the seller, and uh, the reason I like it when people go that down that path is that a seller that is, knows they're being deceptive, a seller that knows that they're misrepresenting things, will never want to hold a large amount of seller financing because they will understand they know. know that their their, op- their likelihood of collecting on it is very low.
1: Yeah, so they're not likely to want to go forward. So.
0: Which, which yeah, at that, that point, yeah, move a problem. on to the next
1: deal. Yeah, right. Just, yeah. uh de- definitely move on to the to the next one. So, yeah, that's yeah. Uh, that's definitely been one of the, uh, you know, one of the learning experiences for me because also there there has to be a lot of trust because there's there's a lot of unknowns and there's so
0: yeah, the more you can build that
1: trust, the more you can get the sellers to become you know trusting of you that they've. That they, they can, you know, be forthright with information, the better it is for you. So,
0: so in your conversations with them, obviously you you talked about numbers and all, and performance and all that kind of stuff. Have you gotten into conversations about how the day-to-day operations unfold?
1: Yeah, they have, they have uh, some team members in place. Um, they have uh, one guy who kind of runs the, all of the maintenance guys. He, he runs those, Basically, um, that whole side of it, uh, they have a, a salesperson who handles part sales and then um, a couple of office admin people uh, who are running, uh, you know, kind of the day-to-day. But the husband is the president of the company and the wife is the bookkeeper, accountant. And, you know, obviously, they're both going to go, so... so I would need to replace them. And And, so I tried tried to build in a number for like a, a, you know, a salary for general manager and for bookkeeper.
0: Yeah. And do you know what they're doing all day long? I mean, bookkeeping sounds pretty evident, but the general manager, what kind of things are they doing? Are they doing this?
1: Yeah. The owner and president. Yeah. I, I don't know what his day to day, uh, Activities are. I know that they have not been going to the office because of concerns about COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I don't know how that it may have changed their day to day. But it, it seems to be relatively, um, you know, organized, well run, uh, organization. But they do have those key employees, and that is that's a big concern there. If you know one of the key employees left. Then, without you know myself having the experience uh, in that business for running the business, and I don't know how to to mitigate that. Um, do you always recommend meeting with the key employees and then having an agreement in place prior to closing the transaction?
0: What I'll tell you: the most common scenario that happened when people wanted to meet key employees is that uh, maybe there was a deposit put with an offer. And the deposit is refundable during due diligence. And what would happen a lot of the times is that the buyer would then say, I want want to meet key employees. And this would always be left to the very last thing so that the buyer could say with a great degree of certainty, yes, I want to buy this business, but I still want to meet these key employees. And a lot of sellers would then ask that the deposit become non-refundable because if you then pulled out after meeting the key employees all the confidentiality is gone now key employees know that there's been a deal under underway for the company to change hands and and a lot of the times you know keeping it secret from employees is important to owners yeah the the key thing there's a couple of key things number 1 there is no such thing as an irreplaceable person every every employee can be replaced the question then just becomes how difficult will it be to find someone who's able to do the work and then properly instruct them on what needs to be done and and that's where business systems and job descriptions and all that kind of stuff comes in and so having a very clear understanding you know the the person who manages the the repair people you know what exactly are they doing they're receiving work orders They're scheduling maybe the pickup and delivery of the containers. They're prioritizing for the, the welders and the repair people. You know, I want you to put this job ahead of that one. And so a description of exactly what those things are that they're doing and then some kind of methodology or system into how it's done. And in most small businesses, this is all within the head of the owner or of key people. And so that person who's in charge of maintenance operations, they have a system. There is a system. It just Charger. may be in, it just may be in here.
1: Right. Not right. documented most likely.
0: Yeah. So, so then you have to get it documented and, you know, the, the fear a lot of people have is when you start to document their process and systems that you're, you know, angling to replace them. Um, and, and basically what I always recommend is when a new owner comes on board is that you talk, the talk of we need to get better organized because we can't grow without that. And the the obviously your aim in buying this business is you'd like to have it be even better than it is today, right? This yeah, is not absolutely. this is not a it's not a lie or deception of any kind. It's we want to grow this business, and a growing business means more opportunity for everyone in it. And that person who's the head of maintenance they can never become the general manager if we don't know how to train the next person, right? And we don't know if someone's going to fall ill from the germ that's going around right now and end up spending two weeks at home. There's all kinds of things that can happen. There can be an accident. Someone can be sure. have an accident on their vacation, right? And so we need to have an idea of how this stuff is, is working so that somebody else can step into the role temporarily. You could you know, step in and make sure things are going okay or that everything is there to train the new person when you, when you hire that person. Or in his example, for example, maybe one of the repair workers is gonna be able to move up into his job, right? It's all gotta be there. So in, whenever someone takes over a new business, there's a training and transition period where you're learning from the sellers, the things that they're doing and what you need to know to, to replace them then there's what I refer to as a normalization period. It's where you get comfortable running the ship under your leadership. And that's where you know some of this systematization stuff will occur. When you're working with the seller during the transition period, you need to document and systematize everything that, that they do so that you can do it. Once you're okay in that seat, then you have to make sure that that kind of stuff is done for everybody else.
1: Do you recommend a certain period of time for that training from the uh, owners? Seems like there might be an either too short or too long. You want to find something.
0: It's funny. This I recorded another holiday chat yesterday, which is probably the one that's coming out just before yours. So listeners may okay. hear these back to back, but it's okay. Um, when whenever I was uh when, whenever I was doing one of these deals, the the buyers always assume that there's a secret sauce recipe that takes a long time to learn. And so buyers will consistently push for longer transition periods, eight, 10, yes. 12 weeks. Yes. Sellers, sellers say, Well, that's ridiculous. They don't need that much time. And they would push for shorter ones. And I would just after a while, when I would start to see what was happening, I would tell my sellers, don't worry about it. They're not going to ask you to be there that long.
1: They're gonna kick you out because,
0: Yeah, what was happening is they would buyers would ask for 12 weeks and after three and a half weeks, they'd say, like, well, I got your cell phone. If you want to go home, that's fine. And they would they would kick them out basically because it's confusing having both the new and the old owner there for employees. If they come in asking a question, who do, do they ask? Know, the first time you might, you know, you don't know, so you defer to the other person, the seller, and then the next time the employee comes in, you just ask the seller. You don't want that. You want them to start seeing you as the leader. Right. And, and most new jobs that you've ever had within a couple of weeks, you're able to to do it. Okay. You want someone available to help coach you and, and help you with the problems as they come up. So the eventual formula that I started recommending to people is to ask for a certain transition period uh, maybe four or five weeks but then ask for a certain number of days that you can use in the next year. So I want five weeks of training and transition from you and another 10 business days that I can call you in over the course of the next 12 so months. come in,
1: okay, I like that.
0: And, and that in. way you can start running it and then you can, as little things come up that you're not sure how to deal with, you can make a decision, but then you can put them on a list. You can kind of make a laundry list of issues you wanna talk with them about. And when they come in with, for their day, then you can like go through the list of all these little things. Some Sometimes different businesses will have these reporting events, whether for government agencies or sales tax, or like different things, like maybe it's a quarterly or a, or, or a semi-annual filing. And so then you might want them to come back for the first one of those you have to do, right? So that they can, they can guide you more carefully and look over your work and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, I like that idea. Right now we have two months training, but I could see breaking that, breaking that up, maybe doing four or five weeks like you suggested. And then the rest of it being either, you know, on, on call or, you know, coming in, you know, down, down the road within a year period of time. But,
0: uh, and the, the other thing I've seen, I've seen this in like almost every deal is if that relationship is built well and you owe them money, (laughs) they'll almost always take your phone call. Yes. Right. And just if you happen to have a one-off question that pops up and you want to talk it through with them, they'll, they'll talk to you on the phone. And, you know, I've never heard of anyone like marking down the minutes to bill you for their time or anything like that. Probably not. Yeah.
1: I I think they're, they're probably hoping the sooner that I get up to speed a hundred percent and get all the questions out, the sooner, you know, the less likely there will be to, to be, uh, you know, future phone calls, but yeah, definitely not having a, a structured, uh, the purchase with an SBA loan with the seller carrying back 15% for that very reason.
0: Yeah. And, and I mean, my, my opinion of, of those loans and deal structures is pretty widely known. I think 15% is pretty slim. That's, that's low in my mind. Okay. Um, you know the seller won't agree with my opinion but you know, <laughs> it is it is it is low because you know if if, if someone is selling their business for a couple million dollars or something you know 15 you know if they accept credit cards you're taking a two and a half percent haircut some people will look at that 15 as a as a lottery they'll be like oh if that money comes in then great but if it doesn't You know, there, some people are willing to walk away from that kind of percentage. And so I don't feel it's true skin in the game. I just, I just don't think it's a big enough slice.
1: Not enough. What do you, what do you recommend? I haven't watched that video of yours.
0: Like I, I prefer when, you know, sellers are holding 25, 30%. Yeah. And, and the only reason people get away with such small vendor carrybacks is because of the SBA program. In other countries, those lending programs aren't available. People have to hold that kind of um, that kind of percentage. There's no choice, right? It's really There's no accepted. choice. Yeah, because because um, like in Canada, for example, banks will only lend on the against the value of the tangible assets. Unless it starts to be a bigger kind of business, then they'll do a little bit of cash flow lending, but it, not a significant amount. the The seller always ends up holding paper, and oftentimes those seller notes have to be um, put into the back seat against the senior lender. So they might have to wait years before they get principal payments, or they might have to wait until the senior lender okays the commencement of payments to them because the senior lender will use that seller note as a way to offset their own risk. The, sometimes the bank will sometimes dictate this. If we're going to do this deal, this is what the seller note has to be like. And, and there's two it was reasons.
1: possible that they could ask for they could ask for a bigger note, you know, yeah. Depending on the uh, you know underwriting and so forth. So,
0: well, and and here's here's the thing that could happen with you in the SBA underwriting process is that prior to the pandemic, a lot of my clients in the states that had business experience, uh, managing people experience, that that experience was being transposed pretty easily from one industry to another. They were okaying it. Since the pandemic, I've seen them tighten up much more on what they will consider transferable experience. So, so it it could be that because your experience is in construction and and um, you know building homes and stuff like that and real estate investing, they they may not quite see that as a compatible skill set to running an industrial service business, right? right? okay. And and so it's this possible. sure. This could come back with a decline, or a requirement for less fine. Like they'll say, "We'll do it, but not to the degree you're asking." It, yeah, either you come in, Mike, with more
1: money, or the seller has to carry back. Yeah. Or you know, we're just going to tap our loan out at this amount. So
0: right. So so this kind of thing could happen. Um, but to your point about you know taking over the the owner's role. If they've been doing their role from home because of the pandemic, then it leads to an interesting question. I, I've seen many people out there say, I've got a business that I, I can run while absent. The impression given is that they don't need to be there. But what is happening more and more is people are able to function in a work environment just remotely. And so people will go spend the winter in Florida, but they're still working six hours a day on their computer and phone. They're still doing the things they would have done when they were, you know, maybe up in their colder home, but they're just doing it from a warmer place. And so the question then is, is it possible for you to do what the current owner is doing while you're in North Carolina? It could be, we don't know. And this is, this is where you're you're likely gonna have to go there and spend a lot of time out there initially. Yeah. And then, then you're gonna have to start judging, do I want to continue to do this role? Is it possible for me to fly out twice a month, spend a few days here while I'm answering emails and talking to people on the phone from the East Coast? It could be, right? You need to learn that role well enough so that if you ever did decide to bring a general manager in, you then have to figure out what kinds of things you have to be watching as an owner to make sure that the general manager is doing a good job. And in order to do that, you, you need to have experience in that role.
1: Yeah. I, you know, I was thinking, you know, I, that I need to that if I buy the business. We're going to move back to the West coast for probably nine to 12 months. Does that seem like a realistic, time period to be immersed in the business
0: it it could be and, and you won't know if it is or not until you're already in there yeah so it could um, be longer when you say we you mean your family
1: yeah wife wife and kids
0: yeah um the, the you know yeah i mean are the young kids will it will it be disruptive to be moving back and forth like this
1: the uh, the the teenager will stay here because he's 19. The uh, four year old he can go back and forth. So <laughs> okay, he's he's young enough that he you know he he'll, he'll be fine. So we yeah. do have that opportunity, you know, that we may not have two or three years from now to do that. They, they come, yeah. Um. So I think it's it's ideal, but yeah, the the you know the plan was to get in there run the business for a year. And at some point um, bring in a general manager, maybe even at the beginning of uh, somebody who's a, a partner slash um, potential COO, CPA, I have somebody in mind for that. So.
0: Yeah, partnerships are complex. Mm-hmm. Um, I honestly, it's very rare to find a really well running partnership. Um, I would uh, agree. I've, I've, I've seen,
1: <laughs> even in the real estate business, you know? Yeah. I've and,
0: the, and I've seen several partnerships work okay, where it was very clear that one person is just putting in money and this is what they're getting out while the other person kind of runs the show. Um, I, I would say that if you can become the owner without needing a partner, as far as like purchase resources, Mm-hmm. that you should, you should be the one that buys it and you should be the one that learns how to run it. Because here's the thing that happens with these small businesses is, is we can never forecast or understand all of the crazy things that might happen. And it could very well be that, you know whoever you hire to be your general manager and the person who is the, the foreman of the repair people, I mean, both of those people could end up going at the same time. There might be no. That's my, that's my
1: greatest fear right there, right now. Yeah.
0: yeah. And, it and is possible. The, the only solution for what happens next week is you go there. Yeah. And and you have to make sure that, you know, customers are being served and stuff and then you have to hire and then you have to train. You know, the, I, I've, I've known many people who've set up complete management teams in place and a couple times a year end up in there even if it's just to cover their management team's vacation
1: yeah that's possible sure
0: right if if there needs to be somebody doing something all the time in some kind of critical role
1: yeah well I think that would be fine even if even if we're in, in North Carolina um, it, it's never hard to convince my wife to go to California for a little bit <laughs> well or and- I just go on my own you know which you know like you said it could be could be just for uh, a couple of weeks. And I think that would be smart, you know, regardless just to uh, just to be there, you know, several times, maybe at least once a quarter or something, even after having uh, established management in place. But my goal would be to go in there for the first year, you know, understand the business, try to set up some systems, some, you know, some kind of uh, KPIs for the different parts of the business uh, so that it, you know, there's a way to, to take you know a snapshot look and go, okay, things are things are running smoothly, or you know, here's the problem. And also, set up um, training, um, onboarding, you know, hiring, all that. And maybe you know that might be too much to try to do in a year. That's uh, that may be. It's it's not realistic on my part.
0: There's there's one of my courses is called Build a Business That People Will Want to Buy. It's yes, I've easy, seen that easy small biz systems.com. Um, I, I go a couple times a year. There's a a management organization here, um, that kind of organizes these groups of business owners. They have me come twice a year, usually to talk to their different cohorts of owners as they're going through their, their management development program. Um, it's many of those students have implemented that fully in just a few months it's, it's basically, it's a step-by-step and it's easy. doesn't take a lot of time, but within the framework, see people who pick up that book, E-Myth Revisited by Michael Gerber, Mm -hmm. they read it and they go, Oh yeah, this is what I have to do. And then they sit down in front of their computer and they don't quite know where to start. Right. And and, and then they just kind of get paralyzed and they sketch out a few things in the business and, and then they don't know what to do next. And so that's, that's what that program is, is, is step one, do this. Step two, fill this in. Step three, set this up in this way. And, and so you can. That's basically, a money.
1: blueprint for just buying the business day one, you know, first 90 days, work on this.
0: Yeah. Well, it's called Build a Business that People Will Want to Buy because I, I made it for business owners to make their business more profitable and easier to run and more saleable. But the fact is that a lot of business That's buyers will want to buy do. it. Right. right. <laughs> they'll buy it because they'll implement it once they get in. And, you know, I had one. I had one guy. Uh, he was in one of these one of these classes, and uh, he implemented it in a, his business. It was a big furniture store in multiple locations. And as he started to work through the process, he began to realize how many people he had that were totally underutilized. They like they were punching the clock so and sitting around all day, or yeah, they they yeah. they had big amounts of time that they weren't really using for anything. And he had no idea because he was busting his butt in the office and all the people around him were crazy busy. And, but the, it was the people in the organization he wasn't spending all of his time with who he thought were busy all the time. And then as he went through this process, he began to realize he had all these available resources to, to move things around to. Yeah, good. Well, that, uh,
1: that definitely seems like something, uh, I need. I need to uh, purchase.
0: Here's so, the other thing you want to consider, though. Isn't uh, North Carolina one of the? Is there in- state income tax there?
1: Low state income tax. It's very. So we're low. not a no. We're not a no state income tax. Okay. But, uh Yeah. you know. I don't know if you're getting toward. Do I want to become a California resident or not? Again, and the answer is I'd probably like to avoid it if possible. <laughs>
0: So, so that's something that you'll need to talk with a CPA about because, if you know, if Certain there's rules around it, yeah, if there's a way for you to continue to be a North Carolina resident and own that business, you know, I know that the business itself is going to, you know, that's where the business is. That's what they're doing business. They're going to be paying taxes over there. Sure, But maybe your salary somehow can get out and be taxed at a lower rate since you're residing in North Carolina. I don't know that you have to talk to an accountant about that.
1: Yeah. Well, that's, that's definitely a concern given there is a huge discrepancy between state income taxes
0: in yeah.
1: North Carolina versus California, which I think they just went up. So. Oh yeah. Yeah. I do get a lot of grief from everyone. Like why, why would you ever buy a business in California? And say, well, it depends on the business
0: you know it it can't be a fantastic
1: place to own a business or you know there wouldn't be anybody there
0: so well yes and 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 here's the thing is that the 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 taxation situation there obviously has an impact on the value of the businesses yeah And, and so you know, yes, your cash flow is not going to be as generous as it would if the business were in, you know, in Texas or something, but the price is going to reflect that. I've, I've seen that many a time when business owners have contacted me for help, you know, and, and it's not just income tax in California. There's a whole bunch of other things too that uh, I was dealing with someone in the landscape management business, mm-hmm. and they, they have to buy equipment that sometimes is double the price of what a a similar business in Arizona would have to buy because of emission control standards. Mm, And so their bottom line is not as good as it should be because of the fact that they had to spend more on equipment than someone in their industry might normally have to. So it's, it's not just taxes, it's multifaceted. And obviously some industries are impacted more than others.
1: Sure. It can be your, your labor costs. I mean, your, your, Unemployment, all that has to be, yeah, yeah, in the mix. I did have another question on expectations for the revenue. So this is a company it's owned by a couple. They've been doing it for thirty years. You know, new guy comes in there. Is there typically a revenue drop off? I mean, is, um, it, is it hard to continue what a seller who's been there a long time has been dealing.
0: Uh, it, 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 there's no hard and fast rule. And, and here's mm-hmm. why. In a business where, the, where, where some of the clientele's or goodwill is located within the individual, people can choose not to go there. So, but this is something that really affects like hairdressers and barbers and, and uh, you know, people where there's a direct one-on-one relationship all the time. And the relationship is between these companies and shipping companies. So on the other side of the table, on the other side of those relationships over at the shipping company, they probably have turnover happening over there. Right? So, so even though this owner may have been in the business for 20 years, it's highly unlikely that any of the people he deals directly with at the customers have been dealing with him for 20 years. Those people change over too. And so, because he's not the guy picking up the containers and dropping off the containers and shaking people's hands and stuff, the, the relationship is m- more likely to be between the two organizations. And so, you know, this is something that really you can only explore by, by talking with him and finding out what the one on one relationships are like. Right. And when you are doing due diligence on the customers and the customer concentration, I would ask questions, not just like how long have you been dealing with this particular shipping line, but who is the person over there that you deal with and how long have you been dealing with that person? Right. So how's the
1: interaction? What is the interaction with them?
0: Yeah. Because sometimes, like I'll tell you, sometimes there could be a person at the shipping line who calls to have containers picked up, but... The relationship as far as getting work orders and being paid is with somebody over the phone at the head office of the shipping line, you know, in some other city, Hong Kong or, yeah, sure. or in another country, yeah. So, so then, you know, your guys who go out and pick up damaged containers, they're going to end up with a relationship with the guy they meet over there, and you know, they'll talk and joke and you know, know, each other after a, t- a time but the relationship in the office you're going to have could be with some person that you'll never, ever meet. Yeah. Or maybe you go to a trade show kind of event where you meet a bunch of them, you know, occasionally. Mm -hmm. So then then it starts to be even less important for you physically to be there. But um, the other thing that can often happen is when you have an owner that's been around for a long time, who's paid off their debts and who is more relaxed and trying to ease themselves into semi-retirement. What ends up happening is they don't pursue opportunities as, as tenaciously as you might. And so I've seen a lot of people go into a business, inject some more liveliness into it and start to grow it. You know, there, there could be shipping lines that they haven't called upon to try to find work for a long time. Sure. There there could be other. They could be fat and happy and, uh, yeah, ghosting. ghosting and and if they don't have debts to service, they may also not be as aggressive on their price increases. So it could be that they haven't been making proper, you know, inflation adjustments to their pricing, um, and then there could be other things that you could discover. So you could discover, you know, we're dealing with the shipping lines, but. You know, maybe there is an opportunity for us to do similar kinds of work for trucking companies or something. Yeah, like that.
1: there absolutely is. Sure.
0: Yeah, and there's so, a
1: crossover, and there's also obviously other ports around the world. That well, that and, may be way down the road, but there is that there is that opportunity.
0: Yeah, going and acquiring other similar businesses in other ports and other places. Um, there could also be an opportunity. Who knows? To be bringing in, you know, someone like a railroad. If, if I don't know if they own their own containers, maybe they own some of them, but if they have a damaged container in Chicago, it doesn't cost a railroad, anything to move it in its own network. So maybe there's an opportunity to get work at your, at this business that might be going to other people in other places. Yes,
1: absolutely. Yeah. I won't know. I guess really until I, until I get in there and get, you know, get immersed.
0: Well, exactly. Do you have any any
1: recommendations on, you know, I, I think like a lot of prospective business owners, I've got like a million ideas. Oh, I will do this, and that. And, you know, this could be an opportunity. Do you have any kind of advice on when to start even considering implementing some of those ideas? Because obviously if something's been working for a long time, it may not, you know, my ideas may be horrible. They may have already been tried and, and failed. So, um, what,
0: what I recommend is you get through that normalization period where you are comfortable running it as it is through that normalization period. As you get to know the business more clearly, a bunch of those ideas you have in your list, you'll probably go down and cross some of them off because <laughs> you'll, you'll, you'll realize like, not, they're not going to work. Yeah. It's not a viable kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then, this is one of the one of the things that you might want to bounce off of the old owner, and the old owner as well could have other ideas of things that could lead to growth that they just simply never implemented.
1: Yeah, that and did come out in the kind of our initial calls, so they, so they did give me a, a list of things, yeah. which is great.
0: Yeah, so there are
1: there are some things. The
0: the, the fun thing about businesses is that you can do changes that can cause your revenue to grow, you know, in, in ways that are much quicker than owning a you know a rental property, for example. Right. 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 And that's the exciting part. And then of course, the, the flip side to that is that things that you can't foresee can cause revenue to go down and have an even bigger impact on profits. So it's a, it's a, it's more of a leverage. It's a, it's, you know you use a mortgage in the real estate game to leverage and increase your rate of return the stick is longer in business so so you can really get much greater you know 10% increase in sales in this business could be a 50% increase in profit and then Brian. the rever- the reverse could be true <clears throat> a very small decrease in sales could be a big decrease in profit and that's that's what you have to be careful of and that's why businesses sell for lower multiples than if you were to try to compare them to real estate, because real estate, it's a tangible thing, has a certain value, which is relatively steady in a business. You know, there's a reason Uber and Lyft spent so much, so much money in that California election about the proposition related to 1099ers, Right like that would have been bigger than, yeah, yeah. than, than COVID for those guys, yeah. right? You know, changing their cost structure incredibly. And and that's the kind of stuff that happens that people um, often, you know, Uber and Lyft knew that they had to fight that and they had the resources to. When a government implements a change that affects smaller businesses, they often can't coordinate any kind of response fast enough that's why trade associations exist to try to do that but you know the 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 rules that can sometimes be implemented like uh, you know like some of the the rules with respect to healthcare and you know what happens when you hit a certain number of employees i've met many business owners that have stopped growing because they don't want to cross certain thresholds they don't want right which which trigger these uh, these added costs it's 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 really awkward because it's almost like the rules are preventing them from from achieving uh, more in the business yeah. and for their community.
1: Yeah, I remember issues with you know full time employees having to get health care and I guess if you're working thirty two hours or more, you know, then you, you get full time health care. So everybody's working you know thirty hours a week and
0: yeah, which you know
1: didn't help those employees. It's true. Anyway, so-
0: Mike um yeah, i hope great. that i was helpful with you today
1: no this is fantastic so i, I appreciate it very much
0: No, well, and i appreciate Lots of good insights you, i appreciate you uh, signing up and i know that uh, everyone will probably enjoy listening to the call and i'll uh, wish you a merry christmas
1: all right thank you you too Take all care. right bye